Hello, and welcome to another episode of Body Liberation for All. I'm your host and decolonized wellness and body image coach, Dahlia Kinsey. I help queer folks of color heal their struggles with shame and self-acceptance through nutrition and self-care so they can live the most fierce, liberated, and joyful version of their lives. After about two years of counseling, I had a strange realization Had I needed therapy for being black? So many of the themes that came up in therapy were related to my experiences of racism, homophobia, and misogyny. Because I still live in an environment that's hostile to so many of my identities, the insults to my well-being continue. Therapy isn't the only tool in my toolkit, but it certainly is a powerful one. Minority stress is a real thing. In addition to the regular stressors that all humans experience, like living through a global pandemic, changing jobs, dealing with uncertainty, facing loss, facing death in the family, stacked on top of that, people with marginalized identities deal with daily experiences of racism and homophobia. When you have multiple marginalized identities, you're even more likely to have trouble finding safer spaces and finding environments where you can relax and feel seen. I'm so happy to be joined today by a licensed professional counselor who is both queer and a person of color. Today, we are joined by Brittany Andrews, the creative mind behind the session, a QT BIPOC mental health film project. I'm sure you, like I, will find their perspectives validating and affirming. Brittany has experience working on the front lines in mental health and has experienced firsthand what it's like to live at the intersection of multiple marginalized identities. And as a bonus, Brittany also drops some knowledge on us about queer Black history. All right, let's get into it. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited for my queer folk, my trans, people of color. Let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Can you tell me the story of how you became interested in working as a counselor? And does that have any connection with your identity? It's a weird kind of like candy land musical story about how I became a counselor. It's uh, actually my second career choice. So I started out in higher education, working in student engagement and student activities. And I loved it because I didn't have to grow up. I was like a forever college student, but semi-professional, you know. But in that space, being able to work with college students, specifically working at HBCU, I got to nurture myself as a young professional that was budding within, you know, the higher education community, learn more about myself as, you know, an adult in the professional sense, as well as my personal societal standing. And then I was able to mentor other young Black professionals coming along. So it was a very enriching space in my life. And 
through that journey, I went to grad school and I majored in counseling. During that program, I was able to kind of do both. We were doing therapy, but we were still doing student engagement because I really had a passion for people and being involved in my community. And then I settled into, you know, the wonderful career path that I have now. So, yeah. Did working with the kids give you that clarity that that was the next step for you professionally? No, (laughs) I thought at one point, like I would stay in higher ed doing a student engagement. I kind of toyed with the idea of going into academia, but really what pushed me into counseling is going to be my, my passion is when I started working with Covenant House California. Like I volunteered with them for the first year that I was living in LA and being able to be with people within this other community that I was a part of, you know, on my everyday professional journey is, you know, like we're young black professionals and it's more so a a hetero cis community. But in this community, I got to see even more of myself, the struggle for what I find in a day-to-day basis, but also how to help people that were in the earlier stages of that struggle, you know, and seeing how they were heavily impacted by their environments, whether they were dealing with homelessness at the time, job insecurity, and just really being a a safe space for them to be able to talk about what that process was like, that experience, and then be able to share also in that space so that they could grow and thrive. That's what pushed me into mental health. Was there one incident that you can remember or a specific day where it suddenly became clear Yeah, it was the second program series that I was running. And the program was at the time when I first started, it was called It's Just a Bowtie. And the idea of the program was a montage of so many things, but more so just a a tangible program for the youth to be able to have an end result of something that they were proud of for themselves. So the, the program, we would make like unique bow ties because fashion or experimenting with fashion was the first way that I was able to express like my gender identity, my gender expression and get to know myself better. So we would make, they would turn the bow ties into hair clips. They would be bow ties. You know, we turned them into like lapel pins. So that became like cool. We turned them into buttons at one point, but they were able to create something that was a true expression of themselves, you know? And then on the bow tie professional side, we were able to talk about what it's like to be a queer person in the professional world. Like, you know, how do I dress for interviews that are coming up? But I I stay true to myself, but I'm listening to what my guidance counselor at school is saying, and they're trying to put me into this binary structure. What do I do? You know, and so when we had those conversations at the very first time that I hosted that event, that's when I knew, like, I'm sticking with this. Like, this is what I'm going to do. Oh, I love that. And you mentioned that you went to an HBCU. Mm -hmm. And that that was a positive environment and that it allowed you to feel at home with part of your identity, but that it still was kind of a cis heteronormative dominated type of environment. Absolutely. You know, not to uh, age myself, but I was in undergrad in uh, like the early or mid 2000s, you know, 2005 to 2009 is when I was in like undergrad. And that was a a different time for us as Black culture. You know, when we think about uh, some of the the mechanisms for power and control within our larger society, music was a lot different back then. Our governmental structures, political views, a lot of things were changing at that time. You know, we were getting in gear for the era of like Obama coming in, right? So things were, were changing the way that I grew up in the 80s and the 90s as a young child and then coming into the professional um, world at that time. And then, of course, my professional career after that was monumental. Being able to see us as a people for Black people thriving here, but also having a space where I was able to learn about Black queer people 
and discover myself there, you know, like learning about Audre Lorde, James Baldwin, you know, these individuals that inspired me, Barbara Jordan, you know, is from here. Houston, Texas is, you know, where she's from, you know, and the pivotal impact that she had within our society, you know, and how that resonated with me and was something that I, I can't ever like put into words. Were you already in touch with your queer identity and your non-binary identity when you were in college? Absolutely not. Absolutely okay. not. I was definitely still walking in the, the culture that we have as a society, you know, trying to do the heteronormative things, you know, that my my parents were telling me, that church was telling me, that society was telling me, us as a Black culture, you know. During that time and even now, we still know that it is a very tense topic of conversation about the place that the LGBTQ plus community has within Black culture, right? And while we've made a lot of progressive changes, we still hear a lot of that same rhetoric that kind of kept us suppressed at the time. So that's why I say in that time period in my life, it was an opportunity for exposure in so many different areas of my life. I became who I am as a Black person, you know, person first in that experience. And that experience is like branched out into so many other areas of my life. Did you ever feel like there was a question about whether or not you would go to an HBCU or you knew that was going to be a crucial part of you really stepping into being your full liberated self? I just think it's okay. So when I was a young kid and I tell people this all the time, when I was five years old, my mom took um, me and my sister on probably one of the most pivotal vacations of my life. You know, we went on a, a black college tour that summer. We got for on who? Because you were five. Was it for your mom? No, like my mom wanted us to be able to go and see black institutions, period. <laughs> you know, so uh, it was an organization that she was working with at the time. So, you know, they did the charter bus thing. So we're literally driving through, you know, like the South to go to all of these like HBCUs. So we hit the whole East Coast coming down back into, you know, Texas. And on that trip, I made the decision at five that I was going to go to Tuskegee. You know, I already started to hear about the Tuskegee Airmen and this is, you know, it was like, oh, this is it. This is it. You know, so I knew that I wanted to go to an HBCU. My, my mother, you know, is a graduate of Texas Southern, not once but twice, you know. So I had that rich culture always around me. You know, my godparents were professors at HBCU. So it was something that I knew. But I was also very um, aware of the influence uh, of going to a PWI, how they kind of crept in in those middle school and high school years, you know talking to my friends about a lot of HBCUs that I was aware of that maybe they weren't because their parents just weren't familiar with the school systems or it just wasn't something that was on their radar at all, right? And hearing the difference, you know, when you tell somebody, oh, you know, you're doing really well in school, they know you're in the top, you know, 5% of your class, they're expecting to hear you saying that you're applying to like these Ivy League schools, you know? So, oh, are you applying to Brown? Are you applying to, you know, Yale? Are you waitlisted, you know, anywhere? And it's like, oh, no, I'm not waitlisted. I already got in. Like, I got into Clark Atlanta. I got into Spelman. I got into Howard. You know, I got into PV. I'm going to Tuskegee, I'm weighing my options, you know, and they're like, I've never heard of those schools. What, what is that? And it was like, dang, but you know, if you say, oh yeah, you know, I actually, I did apply to Yale or I submitted an application, you know, to Harvard or I applied to USC. They're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it sounds good. So I did have that moment of stutter step. Like I got into these schools, but do I really need to consider, you know, those other options that I have? But at the end I said, no, I'm sticking with my people. We're going. You know. See that, and that's really crucial because I think almost everyone raised in the states has been raised to think that proximity to whiteness is 
proximity to success and to safety. And so for a lot of people, myself included, that you go through these decisions where maybe you're drawn to do one thing where you feel like you'll be more enriched as a person, you'll get the individualized care that you need in an environment where your humanity is not questioned. But then you wonder, oh, well, if it's not recognized by most people, because the dominant culture is everywhere. So that means it's not even necessarily going to be as recognized among other Black people, other folks of color. Literally everyone is basically only consistently aware of what the dominant culture is up to. So that has been an ongoing part of my decolonization journey is when I'm drawn to a platform that's led and dominated by whiteness or centered on whiteness, weighing out, is that really what I want? Is this really going to be part of success by my standards? You know, this maybe will be great for someone else, but is this going to be great for me? How do you make that decision? And do you kind of have a framework that you could pass on to other people? How do you decide when you're making a decision based on what's truly best for you and what your conditioning makes you think might be the better decision? Oh yeah, I think this is where those opportunities for mental health come into play, right? Learning the the ideas behind mindfulness, you know, taking a, a moment, you know? And I think anytime that we're making decisions for anyone's life, it's always gonna be take a moment and decide, you know, what's gonna be best for you? And that sentence ends with a period there. It's not a question mark. You know, it's not a comma. We don't have a parentheses opening and an asterisk. You know, what is going to be best for you, right? Like what's going to what's gonna feed you as a person so that you can truly become, you know, the highest version of yourself, right? Weigh your opportunities in front of you, right? And we can be mindful of, you know, the ways that systemic oppression has infiltrated so many aspects of our lives, right? Whether we're still talking about, you know, children choosing the white doll over, you know, the black doll, or we're comparing HBCUs to PWIs, right? It's it's a part of our culture, right? Even right now, people are talking about how decolonizing food, right? When we're talking about vegan communities and, you know, what's great to eat, right? Collard greens and kale, it's still good, right? Now, the way that we are accustomed to preparing those foods, we might have taken away some of those nutritional benefits, right? Okay, but if we prepare it in a different way, it's it's just as good, right? So when we talk about even attending a school, right, is an HBCU better than a PWI? Is a PWI better than an HBCU? I don't think that that's a, an adequate conversation on either end of the spectrum, right? Because I have a lot of friends that went to PWIs. They got great educations, right? And they're doing well. I have a lot of friends that went to HBCUs. They got great educations and they're doing well. But what do we do with the experience at the end, right? Because we can always talk about the differences in those experiences, right? But what are we doing to make those differences not as loud for the next generation? You know, like Mm -hmm. we should have conversations about, oh, I've never heard of that school. What is that? You know, and it's like, oh, excuse me. Right. But at HBCUs, we the way that I say the name of my institution, like I am proud to tell you that I went to this school and I and I invite your questions. Please do ask me about it so that I, I can educate you about this institution. Right. Because I'm sure you would be so willing to educate me about whatever institution you came from and the history of your class ring. But I can also do the same, you know, right. and at those uh, institutions that might not be considered an HBCU. OK, you, you're walking in there with your legacy. Leave it. 
you know, leave it for all of the, the wonderfulness that you as a person are. Leave it there at that institution. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good framing. And PWI stands for private? Predominantly white institutions. Oh, there you go. Okay. It's interesting, even the language that you won't be exposed to if you're not able to be in educational environments dominated by folks of color. Yeah. Everything is that term right there does not sound like it comes through a dominant culture lens because the assumption is whiteness is the default. So mm-hmm. why would you ever say predominantly white? I didn't even see and even think about that. Like as somebody that did not attend, it's like, yeah, I can tell that that came from, you know, it's like, wow. Yeah. They, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I know that one of the teachers that I had in high school who went to an HBCU really encouraged everyone to seek out that experience because she said it helped for her anyway. And she was from generations before us. She probably was 50 when I was 15. So that's a while back. And in hindsight, she was clearly LGBTQ. I don't know what she would say about her gender identity because again, she was raised in a different time and a lot of the language that we have to identify ourselves now, people mm-hmm. weren't using before. Absolutely. But she said that it really helped her detangle a lot of lies she was told about academics and black folks, oh. about academia in general, that, it, that it's not for us, that we don't have a legacy with that. So when you were in your college experience, how did you have the clarity to seek out additional information about queer history in our community since that wasn't maybe openly being presented to you? How did you start to detangle maybe some of the things you'd been told about queerness among Black folks? I guess it's another weird roundabout kind of thing, right? So when I was speaking about the session, when I was at the the grant acceptance for it, I, I kind of talked about how I I think my mom gave a solid effort of showing me somebody when I was a kid. You know, we can always say, you know, your parents know you when you're a child, right? And so from my assumption, right, and this is just my assumption, never got mom to like 100% tap in and say, yeah, that's kind of what I was doing there. But during Black History Month, a uh, challenge that my mother always gave to me and my sister was we could not have the, the Black History Month project. Like ours could not be about Malcolm X or Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks. Pick somebody else. That's just it. That's just it. Right? She, she, wasn't, she wasn't here for it, you know, because she already knew. I know that you know who they are. Right. So pick someone else. Please don't come at me with that. So I think I was maybe in like third or fourth grade and I was like struggling to find my person for my project you know and I was like oh you won't let me do Martin Luther King you know so my mom was like I got somebody for you and so I was like who because I can't find nobody you know she was like Barbara Jordan look her up right that you know this is back in the day we still had like you know what was it the old school encyclopedias and whatnot I was gonna ask did any of this research involve the Dewey Decimal System (laughs) (laughs) with your little notepad and you're walking through the library. Yeah, okay. So I remember the first time that I saw a picture of Barbara Jordan, I kind of paused, you know, and it was something about it that I was like, I like her, you know? And I was like, I want to see more about whatever it is that she did, you know, that 
you're important enough to where you should be a Black History Month project. So what is it, sis? Like, clue me in. But as an adult now, I recognize that I saw her for being queer, but I didn't know what that was. Right. I saw her as having like a masculine edge to her, but also a level of femininity that I liked, you know, and I was like, that's that's it, because that's not what every what I see everybody else doing. Right. And so that was the first time that I truly can say I saw myself in someone else. And so me chasing her history is what led to it, you know, and then, of course, my mother didn't mind because she's a Texas Southern graduate, you know, so the more that I dug into her life, I said, and I was like, yes, you know, and then that just opened up the door to just like, James Baldwin, too? No way, you know, and so, you know, you just kind of bounce through the, the rabbit hole, and I went from there, and then I was blessed to be in an environment where I had firsthand access to other people, you know, all of our professors are standing here, y'all are, you know, again, this is living Black history, you know, me sitting in a class, and I can learn from you right now, that is Black history, our, our university was built on a plantation. You know, so every day that mm, wow, this is our ancestors' wildest dreams. Like when people talk about that, so I was in that constant renewing space. So, yeah. can you for the people who haven't had this experience, which is a lot of us, can you just off the top of your head list off some other of your favorite queer black ancestors? Well, off the top, my faves, of course, Barbara Jordan, James Baldwin, and then I always round out my top three for Audre Lorde. You know, her autobiography of Zami was life-changing for me, you know, to be able to read and listen to someone else, you know, and of course, if you're going to talk about Audre Lorde, then Pat Parker comes up, you know, so I think I would start there. And then, of course, like everything else, everybody's always friends, right? So when you're going through all of their history and their their works, right, they're always intertwined and you just go from there. And then you bounce into Langston Hughes. So you can just kind of create your own little network. And it's like, dang, like I can really imagine like all of them hanging out, you know, like this is this is what we need. This is good for the culture. But, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating because I remember reading Langston Hughes in middle school. And no one ever acknowledged that he might be anything but straight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, same thing. Baynard Rustin, like, you'll see images of these people. And it's like, you'll see this image and it's like, well, I know that person, you know, and I can kind of make out who this is, you know. But these figures, we lose their their weight. You know, their names are kind of like left off, right? And it's so wild. You really start to kind of piece it together. It's like, no, no one ever said anything. Like I didn't realize that all of this was happening at the same time. It really feels to me like a lot of the culture that's recognized by the whole world as, oh, this is black American, whatever. It frequently is tied to queer black folks. So to be erased or to have that part of your identity erased seems just next level disrespectful when so much of what we have could be linked to queer folks. Oh yeah, I think absolutely. But the the larger picture from it really comes down to when we talk about systems of oppression, right? Systems of oppression, they don't just stop at one layer, you know, like we're just going to make a sandwich here and, you know, where we're going to lay this, you know, cheese, like that's just going to be our one little layer of oppression. Absolutely not. This is going to seep through the whole thing, right? Like if this, this is tainted soil, everything that prospers from this place 
will be tainted by this. You know, like it's it's like radioactive. Like you laid this foundation, but you know, queer people as a whole in society are being oppressed, right? So if we look at a global scale, queer people are being oppressed, right? You can take that same oppression and apply it into individual communities. So we're just mounting the layers. Right. So, yes, I'm being oppressed within my own community in which I should feel accepted. I'm being oppressed within this global community also. Right. So, again, that's kind of what pushed me into to doing this session, because I think that's something that we need to talk about. What that feels like on a day to day basis when we're talking about microaggressions, when we're talking about imposter syndrome and we're making these assumptions about people's experiences, where we're not really cueing in and asking, what is it that you are experiencing? Yeah. Tell me more about that. What is the origin story behind the session? I was at like a, a true crossroads. <laughs> I was, uh, I just finished my uh, master's program like this, that spring. So in May, like I officially graduated and then I decided to be an overachiever and I went back for an extra semester to do like consultation and like all this other stuff. So I was like a pseudo grad student. I was leaving higher ed and I was deciding that, you know, I'm going to do mental health like full time. This is going to be my, my full career. So I'm leaving one major career field, getting ready to switch into another one. And then I'm studying, you know, and it's like, oh, I got to study. I'm back in school. I got classes. Plus I got to study for this, you know, national exam so I can become a counselor. This is the whole thing. Right. And then I decide I, to journal <laughs> because so many things were going on. So now, okay, I got to give myself a little mini therapy. We got to journal this out. So I did it um, in the month of July and I journaled during that month about like what my experiences are right now, like the different challenges I was facing as, you know, trying to start this career, what it's like for, you know, somebody like me with all of my identities checked off. You know, this is what my experiences have been like. This is what it's been like weighing on me mentally. This is how it's been weighing on me professionally, spiritually, you know, in all of my relationships. And then I was like, dang, I wonder like, am I the only one? <laughs> you know, like, and there would be some days or weeks where I'd be writing, I'd be like, oh, this is a bit much. Is it just you? Or like, is it other people too? You know? And then that's why I was like, we should, we, this should be like, we need to really have like a session to talk about this, you know? And that's where it came from. So I did um, like a little virtual program through the kid. And I kind of like picked a week where I posted like four different like programs that were geared towards mental health. So the first one we started out with just explaining like, how do you go about getting a therapist, right? At the time people were talking about mental health was starting to become important. Everybody's talking about it. I'm drained. I'm drained. What is burnout? So, okay, let me tell you how you go about getting a therapist. Cause that would always be the question when people would find out that I was a, a counselor or a therapist, you know, you're out with your friends and you're like, please don't tell people what I do because then this turns into a, hey, you know, I just wanted to ask you a question, you know, and it was like, I thought you just said just, you don't believe in therapy, but you sliding over here asking me this question about, you know, such and such person that you know, right? And so we just kind of walk through that, finding a therapist, what to talk about when you're interviewing a therapist, what are some techniques that you can use in between if you're struggling, you know, with your, with your mental health, and then trying to educate people about the different types of mental health providers. And at the end, I decided that I wanted to do the project, like, let's try to do a film you know, to sit down and let's have this conversation with other people. And so once I kind of put that out into the universe, I really just kind of stuck with it and started like writing out a plan, a plan. Okay, this is what we can do. Maybe I could do this. Maybe we could do that. And then I ended up applying for the grant and here we go. During the experience, was there 
a moment where it was so, so obvious to you that all of your intuition was right. This is so needed. You're not the only one. And this is something people are hungry for. No, because I think that I still have like those moments, you know, like self-doubt. Like, is this, you are, you don't do, you're not in film. This isn't your thing. You didn't go to school for this. This is not what your loans are for. <laughs> I mean, I think I have those times, you know, and slowly when you start to allow yourself to kind of just accept that it is what it is, you know, and that's one thing that I can say working within this this space of of different professionals, right? Working with other artists during this time and being able to speak to other creatives, it's really helped me with that idea of, you know, you create it and you just let it be. You know, what is going to be is going to be. You're giving your best and you just walk away from it, you know? And so as I'm kind of walking through those things and having those teachable moments, then yeah, it does come. When I have conversations with other people, they're like, yeah, that yeah, man, let me know when that happens because I really want to see that. Or like, let me know what you want to do because that sounds, you know, good. And it's like, you think so too? Because I did. Well, I'm glad you think so too. Like, let's let's really try to make it happen then, you know? So. It can be really hard when what you want to do hasn't been done before and you can't look at another example and say like, oh, this makes sense because look at this person, they modeled this for me. And mm -hmm. especially when you're trying to serve people who have a marginalized identity or multiple, that it's going to be even harder to find an example of who has already done this. Maybe it has already been done, but maybe it was so difficult to get traction and publicity that it's a buried project somewhere on some old school medium that you and I would never stumble across. So how have you strengthened your belief in yourself to keep pushing even when you can't prove to yourself or to other people that what you're doing is worthwhile. It's exactly what you just said. Like there probably is a project out there somewhere that's similar and it's maybe gotten buried and there is no traction, right? Or there could be, you know, a project that's really out there that's thriving on the forefront and it's doing a lot. But the reality is, no, I, I don't have like a blueprint on like somebody else show me exactly what you did. Like I need somebody to give me a crash course and like direction a film. How do you edit? Like, you know, all of that. I got the therapy side down, you know, just a little bit with school. Cool, but you know the rest of it I don't know but it would be like a, a sense of falsehood if I you know as a person in the mental health profession speak to you know my community my consumers my clients about the the effort that we extend and how that is so monumental in energy for source the systems of change that we want to see and so if I'm simply just giving my effort right then that will come out into the community in the way that it should be right? So the lives that are supposed to be impacted by it will be impacted by it. And I have given, you know, my true earnest energy and effort into it. And that in itself is what makes it a whole project, what makes it something that's worth doing. It sounds like there's a worldview or philosophy that's supporting you as you go through this. Mm -hmm. Now, do you find that there's a difference in how members of the dominant culture frequently position themselves as saviors or as people that are equipped to serve people with marginalized identities that they don't hold. <laughs> In your experience, what is one of the major differences between how someone who shares these identities serves their own community and how people who are just popping in to visit and sometimes doing the work 
to kind of bolster their own ego? How, what is a major difference that you've seen between how somebody from the dominant culture might serve marginalized communities and how members of these own communities serve themselves? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And the first thing that kind of like popped into my mind as you were asking it was like directly related towards like social media. You know, like, what do we see? What do we see? And people are seeing and they're hearing, you know, Black Lives Matter as a movement, right? As a social justice and abolition movement was polarized on social media to its greatest heights and also to some extreme lows, right? We've watched how things can be pushed to so many different endpoints on spectrums. And we've seen a lot of conversation come forward with people directly confronting, you know, whether it's organizations, individuals, institutions about their practices as well as their performances, right? Performative allyship, what it looks like to be responsive to these situations. Oh, you want to donate money now, but you know, just a year ago or a couple of months ago or before this became super popular, we couldn't really get you to give us a conversation in either direction, you know, but all of a sudden now you're willing to help. Why? You know, we want to have clear conversation about that. But the way that it looks different, I think when you can tell if it's performative, it's just by let's make some some general observations, you know, like if you're talking about diversity, equity and inclusion, then what does that actually mean for you? How do you want that experience to be shown within your organization, within your culture? And how are you practicing it? It's more than just simply making a couple choice hires. You know, you can't have a poster child for something and say, we're doing it, you know, but then we ask you like, okay, what's it? You know, they're like, you didn't see our picture that we posted? <laughs> what do you mean? You know, like, did the check clear? <laughs> you know, you're like, okay, I hear you with the financial backing. But sometimes it could be really analyzing the way that you've done things. Like, for instance, it kind of reminds me of, there was this clothing brand a couple years ago. I can't remember the name. It's probably for the best. But <laughs> at any rate, it was like an early startup, like in like little indie company. And it, it got a lot of traction because social media, you know, people post things, everybody's following. So eventually, um, you know, you get a couple choice celebrities kind of, you know, showing up in their fashion and it kind of becomes bigger. But as they were starting out, they were doing like these pop-ups, you know, like a pop-up here, you can come buy stuff from us, we'll pop up over here. So at their little pop-up events, of course, they would try to have things to make it you know, cool, fun, so people spend money, you know, so they want to have a DJ at their event. And there was a, a young artist, I want to say the person was doing like henna art. I want to say that was the art that they were doing. And they asked this person to come out like, hey, can you do a couple pieces for us? Like when the people come in, they're like, oh yeah, cool. Cause you know, I'll get free press promo. Y'all getting a little henna. I'm gonna get something off of this too. But remember we're not paying you for this. So, you know, just come in and do your thing. Okay, but this is like a two hour, three hour function. You got 50, 60, 70 people rolling through here and you want them to do henna for all of these people, right? But if we calculate that, is the reward fair? You know, at the early stages, you want this free labor from these individuals that are budding, you know, oh, you know, BIPOC little small companies, right? Come and we're going to help you, you know, because we have a big following, right? But now that you're thinking about it, you're like, oh yeah, that is kind of messed up. We basically made you do like three hours of free work. And all we did was like post you on Instagram once. Like 
We didn't once we didn't do anything else. Like we're not creating a fund for small businesses for you guys to come in and, you know, a portion of our proceeds will buy or purchase from you or give you a small grant opportunity. We're not, you know, offering you space, you know, for you to come and do your services, you know, for you, since we know you're a small, you know, business entity, you don't have access to funding. Like most people, we are having this event. You can host with us, still charge your, you know, consumers, but we want to give you a space. You know what I'm saying? So I think the the narrative, it looks different. It sounds different. It smells different. It feels different. You know, like it's just, you can tell when something is out of sheer performance and response. You know, because you're seeking a potential uh, response from society versus this is something that you're doing genuinely because you've listened to the concerns of this body of people and you've really sought out what they are asking for as assistance. That's such a good point. And, and that experience really resonates. And I'm sure this feels very familiar to a lot of Black professionals in different industries that are not diverse, especially recently people in an effort to, I I personally feel like in an effort to look like they're keeping up or to not draw any ridicule for doing nothing in response to this growing awareness. And I say growing awareness among the dominant culture only, because none of this was news to us. It was heartbreaking. It was disgusting on many levels to hear how many people are more concerned about property than the loss of human life, but none of it was surprising. None of this is new. We have literally been talking about this since the my entire childhood. I remember hearing like, oh, well, look out, you're driving while black and just remembering like, try to stay calm, stay in your seat. If you get stopped, remember when we were going on vacations through unfamiliar areas, like we just, we got to stick to the speed limit. We can't give anybody any reason to stop us because it's a matter of life and death. That was understood in my childhood and I'm an eighties kid. Mm -hmm. So to hear people saying in 2020, oh, I thought racism was solved. And then to start hearing from other folks of color how many of our experiences that we thought like, is this just me? Am I being paranoid because the people around you gaslight you? And most of us, well, at least most of the folks I was raised with, we were raised in majority white communities. You went to majority white schools. You didn't have anybody validating your experience. And the question is always, oh, how do you know that's about race? Constantly questioning people's lived experience. And I think about how many times as a kid, I was told, don't go into the store if you don't know you're going to buy something. Don't carry your purse into the store. Mm -hmm. Don't put your hands in your pockets. Mm -hmm. And then when they stop you on your way out, just give them the receipt and just don't worry about it. It's not worth the trouble. Because even in the 80s and the 90s, it wasn't strange to harass a Black child and to call the cops on a Black child when they literally didn't do anything wrong. You are paranoid because you're full of bias and white supremacy and you have issues. Oh, yeah. But that affects everyone around you. That affects every customer that comes into your store. And then to be told by other people who really hadn't worked on their internalized white supremacy, how do you know that's not because you're wearing a tie-dye shirt. I literally had somebody say that to me once and I was 12. Who's afraid of a 12-year-old who weighs, I don't even know, like I was so bony. I was clearly a child on every level. A tie-dye shirt is not why I was stopped. I was stopped because of my black skin. 
Yeah. That's yeah. all there is to it. Like you can try and imagine another explanation, but it's just not real. But it felt like in 2020, the more people shared their experiences and people started hearing the validation, that yeah. time's up feeling just got to a boiling point. Oh yeah. I had a coworker, right? I'm not a parent, but I do have nephews, right? My sister and my brother-in-law have four sons, you know? And so they're 21 to 11 months, right? So I, those are like my kids. I have a coworker and she has a, a son who's like in middle school. He's like sixth, seventh grade. And so last summer, you know, kids or the summer, what do we all do? Want to go to the mall, right? We don't have anything to do. It's hot outside. We want to walk around the mall, you know, shop with our parents' money. That's what we want to do, right? So she let her son go to the mall and her and her family, they do live in a neighborhood where it's not, it's not a lot of African-American people in their neighborhood in general, right? So the boys were going into the store and they had gone into like the Nike store or something like that. I and mean, they bought t-shirts or whatever, but they wanted to change, you know, like, oh, we came from home. We got these new t-shirts. We want to wear our shirts like in the mall, you know, trying to impress whoever, right? So her son obviously is African-American, but his good friend is a young Caucasian male. They go into the store, they get these shirts, no bags, you know, we're walking out the store and they're switching the shirts, right? All of a sudden, mall security, the store, everybody, you know, has her son jammed up, you know, like they got him by his, you know, little hands and they're, you know, putting him down because, you know, you're stealing and all this other stuff. So he has this experience with his friend. The parents, you know, come to the mall to pick them up after, you know, they call them and tell them what happens because, of course, they have receipts. So the little boy, he's, you know, obviously shaken up and his friend, you know, is like shook up also. Like, I didn't know that this would happen, whatever. So they talked to their son and they were like, how many times have we had that conversation with you? You know, that you cannot do what, whatever this young, you know, child's name is, you cannot do that. And that was a very hard conversation for them to have, you know, with their child. But on the other end of the spectrum, so where I know that this is a conversation that can be had globally, I have, you know, a really close coworker who is Caucasian, right? And her and her husband have a, a very open and loving home. So their daughter was dating an African-American boy in high school, right? You know, Texas culture, they go to the football games, they hang out, you know, they're out all hours and everybody be home by 12 o'clock, whatever. So the kids are coming home. He's dropping her home. They enter into the neighborhood. The cops pull them over get out the car, you know, all this stuff is going on. And so the police officers asked her daughter, you know, like, are you okay, ma'am? Why are you riding in the car with this boy? Are you okay? You know, like asking her all these questions. And so she got really upset. She's crying. Why are you accusing him of these things? And so of course her parents, my coworker and husband came up to the front of the neighborhood. This is our daughter. This is her, you know, her boyfriend. We want to talk to your supervisor. You know, this is what's going on. And to listen to the conversation that her daughter had with her when she came home, she was like, mom, you know, I knew that this could be something to happen, but she was like, the way that I felt, you know, as they were asking me, like, am I okay? Because I'm in the car with him. So I was like, it's not that people are oblivious to this. You know, you can see it if you want to. You can talk about it with your children if you want to. You know, I think it's just a matter sometimes of people just truly having the rose tinted glasses or you just built these hedges up that turned into concrete walls where you just 
you can't see it. I'm in the South too. And there are a lot of people here who don't want to see it because they still believe a lot of these negative things. They Mm -hmm. still think it's a good idea to stop someone. Every time you see a white woman with a black man, you need to make sure she's okay. There are a lot of people who still think that. And there are so many mixed couples in Georgia. You know, a lot of white women are partnered with black men. And when I talk to, because some of my coworkers are in these relationships, they say they see a minor improvement since the 90s. Yeah. That they're not stopped as frequently, but Mm -hmm. that it gives them rage when they think about their kids, you know, their safety isn't anyone's priority, right? That if their dark-skinned daughter is in a car with a white man, no one's going to stop to see if she's okay. Mm -hmm. There's so many layers. And then we think about the history. If we really look at the numbers, who's more likely to be in danger? People don't want to face that they low-key love white supremacy it goes back to what we were talking about before like those systems of oppression and how they can um, kind of stack on top right so experiencing racism and then you add you know individuals that have a heteronormative viewpoint of the world and so we start talking about homophobia if you still want to use that terminology right xenophobia islamophobia right it can be a lot to take in. And that's one thing that I learned from the project too, dealing with systems of oppression throughout the intersections of your identity and how devastating that can be. You know, I'm going through all of this. So, you know, in my culture, I'm taught to lean heavily towards religion, but I can't lean too hard on it because, oh, you know, we have so many heartbreaking stories from, you know, individuals being in particular religious communities, right? And African-American community, most of the time it's dominated by like a Christian sense, whether you're Baptist, Catholic, you know, Methodist, Episcopal, whatever, right? But we also have individuals that practice other faiths too, you know, like individuals do practice Islam. We do have, you know, African-American folks that are Hindu or, you know, it's a lot of things there, right? And then we cross into, like you're talking about, relationships with other ethnicities too, right? And now we're adding into those intersections and then you add work and everything else. And it's like, where do we go? right? To have some sense of positive reflection of self. If everything around me is so negative towards who I am as an individual. And that's a really important conversation to have, because if you're looking even now for resources that address multiple identities that aren't being celebrated on a massive scale, you don't find a lot of resources that acknowledge that people hold more than one marginalized identity at a time. And finding safe spaces can be tricky. So Mm -hmm. in your experience as a professional who works with mental health, you know that a lot of times in the Black community, because people have a lot of stigma about mental illness and therefore shy away from mental health services sometimes, even if they don't have a diagnosis that would be a stigmatized. Like if you just have anxiety, which to me means you're a person who's breathing, (laughs) that some people still are really reluctant to get any kind of support. What do you feel the role of community can be? What's the line between when you absolutely need to see a counselor 
and how much support can you get in other areas? Well, I think if we're if we're talking about a, a very hard line within the mental health profession, and especially here, the way that things are uh, set up as a society within the United States, right? If we're ever having ideas to harm ourselves or someone else, right, then we need to seek immediate, you know, medical intervention, right? National Suicide Hotline is available, 911 in all areas, you know, is available for psychiatric mobile support. Another good thing, I know that most people have, you know, the National Suicide Hotline, but depending on what community you're living in, what city, there are usually like individual city crisis lines also. So you can kind of dial in that support to kind of come in a little bit, you know, faster. But as far as if we're not talking about emergency, psychiatric or mental health needs, right? If we're talking about, you know, I think I'm dealing with some concerns for depression or anxiety, or I'm really having a hard time focusing, things like that. I think that it's healthy to have a therapist at all points in life, whether we're, things are going great, right? It's cool to go to therapy and like, bro, it's going amazing. <laughs> you know, like it's a good safe space to really be able to celebrate the things that are happening in your life, right? Really be able to plan the next level of things that you want to do, right? It's okay. Like therapy doesn't have to be the place where we just associate it with, oh, Oh, it's going to be some really bad things. Everything in there is probably crying and needing a whole bunch of Kleenex boxes, right? That's not what it has to be. But when we're going through some major adjustments or any life adjustments, it's okay to step in and get some additional support. Having a connection to spiritual resources is not a negative, right? It's a positive. But we do want to make sure that we're aligning with professionals that understand your spiritual practices too. Right. If you are, you know, not practicing, you know, the normatives of society, right? If you're not a traditional Baptist or Catholic or something like that, maybe you're practicing, you know, a Yoruba faith or, you know, you believe in Orishas or, you know, things like that. It's good for you to have those conversations with your provider, right? But then that goes back into us educating ourselves on how do we select a therapist, right? How do I decide which counselor is right for me? And do I get to decide? The answer to that is absolutely yes. Like interview them. You know, it's it's no hard feelings if you're like, mm -mm, I don't like their vibe. I don't want to talk to them. Fine. Choose someone else, you know, because there's a lot of people <laughs> out here, but you want to make this the best decision for you to process whatever's going on. Yeah. Where do people view that? Because I think that is something a lot of people struggle with too. Sometimes I think it's tied back to that whole don't even show up if you're not going to spend money that a lot of Black folks have been, you've had that drilled into you. Like we don't get to show up and loiter. We don't get to window shop. And so you feel like, oh, once I'm in this waiting room. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that's another thing that we have to talk about, right? Again, how that oppression shows up, you know, in all those aspects of our lives, how it seeps in. We're talking about like, we don't get to window shop. Like once I'm in, I'm in, you know, like, and I ain't got no money for these people. You know, they're going to be looking for something and, you know, all this other stuff, right? That's that, that trauma coming in, you know, to speak up for us, right? But mm -mm, it works a little bit different, right? And it's okay to ask questions. That's another part of normalizing mental health ask questions about how it works. You know, like everybody's not, I'm a, you know, 1-800-therapy genius. I can tell you all the steps A to B. No, like ask somebody. It's okay to say, well, how do you get one? You know, or what does, what are the costs like? What is, what does it cost? Because I don't even know. You know, people are like, it's expensive. Well, what is expensive? You know, if you ask someone, you know, because I've had people say to me, I can't afford it. Okay. You know, like I'm not, I'm not in your pockets. I'm not in your pockets, but can I ask you a question? If, if you had to go and it was something you had to do once a week, what would be too expensive? 
you know, $500 to be giving them every week. I said, $500? That's expensive. You know, if you talk about $500 a week, you got to go once a week and it's four weeks in a month. I don't have it either. I don't have it either. If it's $500, I don't have it. You know, but when you talk to people about it, it's like, okay, well, did you know that there's a sliding scale? Did you know that there are therapists that do pro bono work? Right. You can be on a waiting list for somebody's pro bono side. Right. There's community mental health where the services might actually be zero dollars. It's free because you're a resident of this community is already given to you. You know, one thing that I do want to make sure that we make clear is that that idea of depriving ourselves. Right. That's an idea that kind of comes in. And in my opinion, it, it stems from those systems of oppression. Like who determines what is disposable income? Because your definition of disposable income in mind could be different, right? If we're talking about the upkeep of self, mental health is the upkeep of self. So if said person needs to go and have their hair done, because this is the one opportunity that they have each month to care for themselves, it gives them an opportunity to, you know, disconnect from the things at home, I'm at peace during this time, pay for that. Give it, right? Because we live in this capitalistic society that tells you, well, if you want more, then you should deprive yourself of the things that already make you happy, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, maybe, because I love a good Starbucks, okay? I love a good Starbucks, but maybe I don't go every day, three times a day, but it is okay for me to go and say, you know what, today, I really do need that ice caramel macchiato upside down, venti, I need that right now, today. Please. Thank you. I need that. Right. But when we have those conversations about expenses, that's why I say I always ask, what is your definition of too expensive? Because, again, that system of oppression has already told you that you're boxed out. You can't afford it. It's for white people. It's not attainable for you. You don't get to go to therapy. You don't talk to other people. What happens in this house stays in this house. You don't talk to white people about our concerns. Ain't no such thing as a black therapist. Then people going to take you from us. Keep this inside. So there are so many layers that were Put between you and this service before we even started talking about the money, right? So when I ask you what is expensive, tell me because expensive might not be money. Expense might be I don't have the physical time to pick my child up, get home, get dinner started, and be able to be to your office for therapy by six o'clock. I don't have that type of time because I got an hour and a half in traffic. So expense in this case is time. That means let me tell you about my telehealth services. We can do your session in the car while you're waiting to pick up your child before you come and get them. Or maybe after you've scheduled this, you know, time for them to go to sleep, my office is open for telehealth until eight o'clock. That's my last slot. Because now we're talking about expense for you. Expense for you, based on your intersections of life, does not always come with money. And that's one thing in our global society that we have to start understanding because you took away opportunities from me, right? If we're redlining, if we're gerrymandering, then no, money was never a bargaining chip for me because you took away my opportunities for access to education. You took away my opportunities for access to home ownership to build a system of wealth. So money was never a bargaining chip that I was given. And for the working class, since the working class sells their time for money, time is always going to be a problem. And I don't know how much things have shifted or improved because of the pandemic, but a lot of providers in my area never offered telehealth because the closed systems that were actually going to be HIPAA compliant mm -hmm. were cost prohibitive for them. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And there were some health insurance companies that were not reimbursing if the session didn't take place face to face. 
Oh, yes. So oh. that was always a barrier. Oh, yeah. But even with that, right, when we're talking about not having access to telehealth services, insurance companies not making this accessible, right, that again plays into those larger systems of oppression, right? Most individuals that can afford private pay therapy, right, they're not billing through their insurance, hence why they're private pay client, right? They're paying for whatever it is that they're needing. So I don't need to consult with the insurance company about whether or not the service that I'm going to provide for you is billable, right? We can do this over the phone. We can do this, you know, via the, the different networks that we have set up for that. We can do this. This is your therapy session. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. Make sure it's HIPAA compliant because you're already paying for it, right? But if I am using community mental health services, if I'm relying on Medicaid or Medicare and they set up these barriers, let's think about how that works. Because again, I'm telling you that the, this service that you're providing to the people that need it, the low socioeconomic community that needs it, you are understanding that they already have these certain restrictions in place. And it's not always children. We can talk about individuals' A scores, right? The A survey is something that's been accessible since the 1990, right? Nadine Burks Harris made it extremely popular after she gave that phenomenal TED Talk, right? After she became, you know, the Surgeon General for the state of California. But before that, you've had this information about how these individuals were being affected, right? In the best of society, as well as, you know, the, the lower socioeconomic communities. But you have not done anything to truly help them. We've set up a lot of barriers. I gave you insurance. Okay, you gave me insurance, but why I can't have telehealth? If I'm telling you that I work on this side of town, I got to get here. This is what I need to do. My kids just need a checkup. They're not sick. We're not coming in. They can just get on the FaceTime with the doctor so we can get their little scripts on so they can play basketball with the kids down the street, you know? So many things all of a sudden magically became possible mm -hmm. during COVID that before everybody said could not be done. But so many people who were told, no, you have to work in person. Oh, okay, this can work otherwise. Oh, magically, look, it's not a problem. I know you have to come in, even though it's clearly just pink eye. Oh, all of a sudden, yeah, we can do that remotely. It's yeah. just really interesting when the desire isn't there. Mm -hmm. The motivation has to be there for preservation of, you know, self. But if it's not something that immediately impacts me, then, you know, it's like, oh, I'm not worried about it, right? And again, as a society, we should not want to be reactive to things, you know? Once it becomes an issue for me, then I have a response or a comment on it, you know? But it's like, well, you know, if the rainforest is burning down, you know, in the Amazon, that's not really affecting me right now in my house today. So no, I don't really want to talk about it. But maybe in the next five or 10 years when everybody is truly walking around with gas masks on and it's a whole big thing now. I'm gonna have and that's a maybe. <laughs> and that's if you made it to that point, right? But we we don't want to be that way or we, we should aspire to be better as people, right? So being proactive and truly just listening to people. Again, asking somebody about their experience. If you don't know something, then it's okay to go into a space, right? With a closed mouth and two ears open. Right. That's why we, we got two ears and one mouth. Right. Listen twice. Right. Before you speak. So listen in for what the community is saying. Listen in for the challenges and barriers. Right. And before you offer up a solution, why don't you ask them, do they have any solutions? Right. Because they've been experiencing this for so long. They might have already seen something that can be very beneficial before you jump and say, oh, I know how to fix that already. But you haven't even experienced it. So how would you know?
When it comes to finding ways to be proactive in a system that prioritizes profit above people mm-hmm. and looking for ways to be part of the solution within the existing structure, how do you create a vision for things like that? Because what I keep running into is people who, for different reasons, because they can't imagine anything beyond this predatory very, very capitalistic way of doing everything. People are boxed in by that, that because they haven't seen it modeled, they don't seem to know another way to do it. Like you said about not paying folks of color when you're a small startup, because you feel like you just don't have the money to do it. Mm -hmm. But is that really true? Or is your concept of how business must function holding you back from being more ethical. What do you do? How can you be ethical in a system that has trained us not to be ethical and that doesn't present us with a lot of alternatives? Well, I think the the first thing to that is my the vision that kind of keeps me on on the right path, right? And so that's the idea behind the kid. It stands for keeping individuals driven towards their destiny. Right. So if we're staying focused on our destiny, right, what our pathway is, right, then we're focusing in on what challenges and barriers we have in front of us and being mindful of what that path to destiny has on it. Right. I'm mindful of my surroundings so I can tap in for areas of support and resources. Right. Because I might not be able to bulldoze my way through this barrier that's ahead. But if we work together, then we can build this bridge. You know, so what is it that we can do as a community, right? Because again, like I said before, we're all holding on by our last thread. Everybody, you know, between just the the day to day, what it is to be black in America, you know, James said it best, right? I am in a constant state of rage, right? A constant state of rage. And I don't think that there's anyone that can put it in a better way. Because how is it that you function in day to day life? and you are in a constant state of rage. Everything around me, right? I see the the problem that it poses to my sheer existence, right? Okay, so I'm developing the community around me so that I can make sure that whatever path that I leave behind me, it's better than how I found it. That's really what it is. Working in community and space and being open and honest, right? Working with other Black creatives, working with other creatives that are people of color, working with other individuals that are within the LGBTQ plus community, and being very direct with people that present themselves as allies. Taking up that space to really do a little bit of investigative work. You know, what is it that you want to do? How is it that you want to be helpful? right? Are you listening, right? And really checking in with myself. How do I feel about this interaction? Do I feel like I'm just kind of being pent up as a poster child for something? And then afterwards, we really not going to do nothing? Because if I'm kind of getting that vibe, then this might not be the the best space for us to, you know, do business, you know, or it might not be good for us to collaborate. I'm going to move on and and do something else. And that can be a really difficult skill to learn because who's been taught that? maybe some lucky kid out there somewhere, but I certainly was never taught that it's safe to talk back to white folks. And especially now with a lot of pseudo allies using weaponizing tears and getting just doing the most when it comes to 
reacting to someone saying, oh, I see your white supremacy is showing. Maybe this isn't what you want as a person. Like this runs counter to your conscious beliefs, but that doesn't mean it's never going to be manifest. It's never going to come through you. If I have internalized white supremacy, you're out of your damn mind if you think you don't have any, right? Like it makes no logical sense. But I have had very few experiences where I've been able to identify something that was problematic and harmful and it not have turned into like this really uncomfortable situation that I didn't feel emotionally prepared to have. Oh, yeah. And I think that even that, like having those experiences, it sucks. You know, because that's draining on you as an individual, us as a person, as a being, right? I, I question my value within this this business relationship that we had or this collaboration, this partnership. I question my value in my community space, right? Then you start questioning in, in all spaces, your professional space, what am I doing? You know, so it really takes a huge toll on the being that we are as a person. But like I said before, developing that community around me. You know, and sometimes, honestly, the community doesn't necessarily have to be someone that I have a direct conversation with. I'm very particular about the the information that kind of shows up on my social media feeds. A lot of it, it can be filled with a lot of community activism and things like that, right? But I also make sure that I tie in some of the funny stuff, like the dogs that, you know, dress up. So like, I watch those too when I need a break, right? But really just having a community of people around me, following other creatives' accounts, right? People that are doing uh, projects or works and things that, you know, I didn't think of that. It was never on my mind, but I'm so glad that you're doing it. So let me, you know, watch your project flourish and grow, right? So I can kind of see what you're doing and who you're connecting with, because maybe at some point we might be able to do something together. But in the meantime, I'm rooting you on from the background, double tapping and making sure that I, you know, posted to my stories or what have you. So, but just really developing that community with people that are experiencing the same thing, because it can be very isolating. It's sad that we can say that's something that we've all experienced but it normalizes and it helps us to grow and create that confidence to say, uh-uh, we don't have to deal with it. See, that's very helpful to hear from someone who is working in a professional mental health space because I've heard some people criticize folks of color for just trauma dumping. Mm -hmm. But in some contexts, people are looking to have their experience validated and mirrored back to them. And I find that a lot of folks of color do that extremely well, because this is a skill that you've, <laughs> you've been using for years, mm -hmm. if you have the, the benefit of being around folks of color on occasion, which not everybody does. Well, right. And I think that also, is, it shows up, like you said, not everyone has that, that opportunity, right? Me and my partner were just talking about that the other day. It, that is a big part of Black culture is my cousin and him. <laughs> you know, like who that? That's my cousin. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's my cousin. Yeah. I don't know what your parents look like, you know, but we've been going to school together for the last three or four years. You know, we we down. That's my cousin. You know, having a community. You know, I have play cousins that are like my real cousins. You know what I mean? Like they've been so integrated into my family that people don't even know that we're not blood related. You know, like they right. so many family functions, funerals, birthdays, weddings, whatever. Right now, if you ask a couple people that are like close to me, they'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, that's their cousin. And these people have known me for years. You know, you've been my friend for 20 plus years. And you really think this is my cousin? You know, <laughs> I have no blood relation. 
right? Not a single blood relation, you know, but this is my cousin. But having community is important. And I think that's one thing that really hinders us sometimes. You know, we aspire to grow and to get more. Right. And I'm right now I'm reading our content. It's a reread for me, but it just kind of reaffirms sometimes that conversation that we have within our own communities. Right. We talk about classes or culture or how people are segregated within, you know, these small micro communities. But it also really speaks to how we maintain a development of community. You know, when we talk about community organizations like Jack and Jill or the Greek organizations that were started in college. Right. That is for us to maintain a sense of community. You know, like I'm here navigating this space and it might not really be a lot of us there, but I know where I can find us. When I see you just in the same way, you know, you wore this particular class ring. When I see you with this particular lapel pin on, I know you got me right. We, we don't even have to talk about it. It's already understood, you know, because I'm within these communities of people. Right. And I think it's important. It never goes away. That's a part of our culture. Right. And that's something that we have to learn how to rely on again, especially in our society, we're so focused on the individual, you know, in school is you got to do this, you have to do this, you have to do that. But that's not the way that we grow. We as a people, us, y'all, we as a people grow as a community, right? So you have to find your people, you know, and if you're not connected and plugged into your community, or you are not developing a community, then no, I don't think that we're going to have any sense of growth. Hmm. I think that's pretty crucial. And because that's so different from what the dominant culture says and how the dominant culture operates with that extreme individualism, like I'm all for people being self-sufficient if they, if possible, if they want to, whatever, but the level of individualistic thinking that you see exhibited and taught by the dominant culture is such a departure from most BIPOC cultural inclinations that it's so unrelatable. But if everything you've ever been taught is through that lens, like businesses like this, projects must have one kind of leader. One person has to make all the decisions and one person has to stand to lose more than everyone else. It's, tricky sometimes to feel truly comfortable when you start operating in a way that's more community centered Mm -hmm. and you wonder, oh, is this how we do this? Am I doing this right? Can this possibly be sustainable? Is this okay? Yeah. Yeah. But that's why I say that's the good thing about community though. You know, dictatorship doesn't work because you just have a whole bunch of people around you telling you what you want to hear. And then we all know that when the king goes to bed at night, you know, everyone else has a whole full-blown meeting about how we're going to get rid of the king. You know, so it doesn't work, but community, it does work. You know, and like you said, the history of us as people, people of color, indigenous people, black people, brown people, you know, the Asian community, we are historically by sheer nature, community driven, you know, and it's something for us to just reaffirm with one another. And I think it's a, it's a really good time. You know, now is always a great time. I don't care when now is, but now is always a really great time to do that, especially in the face of all that we've been going through since, you know, the panorama started up until, you know, right now. Now, what is your vision for the future for the session? My vision is to show it more, you know, get more opportunities to show the documentary, have more opportunities to have community dialogue and 
it to become a living piece, you know, information for individuals. You know, if people use it as a topic of reference when they're having diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings, or if we're talking about cultural humility towards working with the LGBTQ plus community, then I think that the experiences that these individuals were able to share in the session is very, very reflective of our communities as a whole. And their stories, I think, are going to, you know, impact a lot of people that get to hear them. How do we keep up with the project and with you? For keeping up with the project itself, it does have an Instagram page. It's at the session QPLC. For keeping up with me professionally, the kid has a page. It's at the kid with two D's, so K-I-D-D-O-R-G. And then my account is at B today. Awesome. And if people want to work with someone who is a counselor of color and LGBTQA+, is there a resource for that yet? Like a directory? There's a, a ton of directories for uh, therapists, thankfully, uh, and a lot of directories that center uh, Black or Indigenous cultures. The Latinx Therapist is a therapy network for Latinx therapists. You have Therapy for Black Girls is a really good a therapy resource. There is the National Queer and Trans Registry for counselors. So counselors from all across like the U.S. that are within the LGBTQ plus community are registered there. There's a lot of different applications that are out now to help you get connected with a therapist of color. Truly, 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 I tell people all the time, we're living in the day and age where you can ask Google anything, 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 you know, like, so you can literally type in, how do I find a black therapist? How do I find a queer therapist? How do I find, you know, a trans therapist? It's going to give you, you know, some type of answer. But if you're interested in getting more information, I'll be updating my website soon that I have like a little mini breakdown on, you know, just some basic FAQs on how to find a therapist. So, yeah. Oh, that's exciting. If there was one thing that you could say and magically everyone would understand it and hold it close to their heart, what's one thing you would want everyone to know? I don't know because I have so many things, <laughs> but I do think that it is important for every person, um, every being to have the experience of being seen and heard and to just experience how extremely validating that can be, right? And if that's something that you're interested in doing or something that you feel like is an experience that you, your partner, your family, your community, you know, society as a whole needs, and I encourage everybody to, you know, research how they can better support their own mental health. Oh, I love it. That was such an informative conversation. If you miss any of the names of the queer black ancestors, don't worry. I have all of those names and relevant links in the show notes. Just visit DahliaKinsey.com and you'll find that under the podcast link. If you are already subscribed to the mailing list, that will be delivered straight to your inbox and you won't have to lift a finger. I really appreciate how specific Brittany's advice was about how you can find a mental health care provider that's perfect for you. So if you need more support and the first person you come into contact with is not for you, please follow the advice they shared and keep looking and feel free to advocate for yourself.
please reach out to Brittany, check out their work and check out the session. I love the idea of breaking down the stigma that we have around receiving the support that we need when it comes to mental health care. If you know someone else needs to hear today's message, please be sure to share the episode. Anytime you like, review, or share the podcast, you're helping this message reach other people that need it. And I thank you so much for your help. Just a reminder that I do have one-on-one spots available in the coaching program right now. If you are ready to heal your relationship with your body and learn how to use nutrition as a self-care and personal empowerment tool, check out the show notes and you'll find the link to apply to the one-on-one coaching program there. Thanks again for joining me. I will see you next time. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited. For my queer folk, my trans, people of color, let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go.